0: Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. A warm, happy Father's Day to all of our fathers. Today we honor our earthly fathers and we worship our heavenly Father. Of course, Father's Day touches everyone. Whether or not you have a father or are one, we all have a father. I pray that we have all had a godly father to look up to. But even so, We have a heavenly father who is faithful. Apart from knowing Christ and being a husband to my wife and being a father to my children has been the greatest joy in my life. It is a privilege. So we want to applaud and we want to thank the faithful fathers out there who are day in and day out providing for their families. Being the priest of your home Leading your wife and children, pointing them to Christ, we rejoice in that. And we thank the Lord for you. And yet we know, beloved, that we have a crisis of fatherhood in our country. Fathers, we are told by our culture today that the source of our ills, particularly with our boys, is due in large part to something called toxic masculinity. To do things with our boys that engender masculinity, they say, is not just wrong and problematic. It is, in fact, toxic. To engage in activity that would be considered stereotypical male is wrong. That it's perpetuating male dominance, which, of course, is the real source of our problems in America, they say. Hunting with your boys, shooting guns, fishing, fixing lawnmowers and wrestling them to the ground all perpetuating the patriarchy. As we look to the tragedies of school shootings, as we look at crime that is so pervasive in certain communities, the constant and consistent thread in nearly all is the lack of a father, the lack of masculine influence that is meant to train up, to teach, and to restrain a young man. Fathers, nearly 50% of all boys you see are being raised by a single mother. 80% of all teachers are female. This means that one out of every two boys has 100% feminine influence in the home and 80% feminine influence in his school. Our boys and young men are awash in femininity. The problem is not toxic masculinity, Dad. Don't buy it for a second. Moms can do a thousand things that dads can't. I see it every day. I can testify to that. But God has designed a boy, a young man, to need his dad. There are some things only you can do to see leadership demonstrated, modeling a strength in gentleness, who would fight any wolf at the door but never fail to open that same door for a lady. If they want to call that toxic masculinity then dads, let's get toxic. So happy Father's Day. Happy, manly, masculine, testosterone-fueled Father's Day. And every godly woman in the world said amen. 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 Well, very quickly before we dive into our text, I've been asked by many about my trip to the Southern Baptist Convention this week in Anaheim, California representing and voting for Harrison Hills as a messenger, along with our very own Brent Small as well. While there will be much more to talk about in the coming weeks, I can say with certainty that many, many pastors are returning to their congregations this Sunday incredibly saddened by the continued trajectory of the SBC. And There are many, many things that can and will be discussed in the coming days and weeks concerning what that means for us as a body of believers in Lanesville, Indiana. A body of believers that is committed to the clear teachings of the word of God. A body of believers that rejects pragmatism. And while we love and desire unity, above all we desire truth. Undiluted, unfiltered, uncompromised. So know, beloved, that church leadership is in continual prayer concerning these matters with much more to be discussed in the coming weeks. But until then, be encouraged. God's church is as strong as ever. We are not back on our heels. The gates of hell are not prevailing against her. Jesus gave up his life for his bride, the church. He loves it and he will guard it. You know, dear brother, Dr. Stephen Lawson, who I believe many of you ladies now know through your study that you began this week, which I heard such wonderful things about, said recently, quote, Jesus will build his church. He will not build our church, and we will not build his church. He will only build his church, and so he shall. Amen? Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we began our series titled Jesus on Divorce. Today, we conclude our three-part series that has been such a challenge and a blessing to so many. I, I so appreciate those of you who have shared with me about your experiences in this realm, the hurts and the truths of God's word that have been applied to those hurts, like the balm of Gilead bringing healing and redemption And restoration, last week, found us in the middle of a seeming trap sprung on Jesus by our friends, the Pharisees. And as they sought for Jesus to really proclaim his own death sentence by openly rebuking the liberal view of divorce. Of course, if he did that, not only would people turn against him as they love their ability to divorce at will, but of course this would put Jesus as being guilty of the same crime that cost John the Baptist his head. The scheme was really diabolical. And to the natural man's mind, there would seem to be no way out. Jesus would be boxed in. They knew Jesus' position on divorce. He had declared it earlier in Matthew, as we saw. But now, they're going to get him on record. No doubt running with that information, taking it straight to Herod and Herodias, whose fortress palace was quite close to Jesus in his time here of his Purian ministry. Now we must remember for those who who may have missed earlier parts of our series that Jesus has left Capernaum, he's left Galilee, this time for good. He would not return again until he was the risen Lord and he is risen today. Jesus is heading south on his divine timetable so as to arrive in Jerusalem in chapter 11 just in time for Passover to be our Passover lamb. And we saw the pivotal, very, very, very understated moment in chapter 10, verse 1, where Jesus leaves Galilee for good, heading south. We could well and truly call this a six-month death march for Jesus. He knew where he was heading. He knew what would happen to him there. Every step south Jesus made being one step closer to his agony and to our redemption. I want us to have that divine timetable in our head as we're shifting into high gear and top speed toward Jerusalem, which makes every topic at this stage covered by Jesus, if it were possible, even more pressing. Time being short, has, it has a way of sharpening priorities, saying only the important things, keeping the main things, the main things. If Jesus is dedicating time for this, it's a matter of great urgency. Of course, all things Jesus said were of divine importance, but there is a personal intensity of teaching with his disciples at this point. Jesus' response to the Pharisees concerning divorce was masterful, was it not? Giving us a pattern for our own worldview. He doesn't get into the weeds parsing the the teachings of Rabbi Hillel versus Shammai. He swipes that all to the side with one question in verse 3. What does Scripture say? What did Moses say? Behold the only real question that matters. Behold our pattern for thought and our pattern for action. It was no different in that day than today. We are awash in culture and opinions. We have our Rabbi Hillels. We have our lofty and celebrity pastors who the crowds love that follow these false teachers. To, follow, to call out such a person, to name such a one, as Paul commands us, is to set the majority of evangelicals against you today. Sadly, even this week, I watched Rick Warren, a false teacher, receive a standing ovation from the crowd at the SBC convention, following a speech that would make any pastor blush. To name him. And to call him out is to set yourself at odds with the prevailing winds of our day. But see to it, Paul warns the church at Colossae, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We have our Rabbi Hillels. We call them out and ask, what does Scripture say? We have much to see in our text today, beloved, much ground to cover, so we're going to dig right in. I try to give thorough reviews, but need to proceed. So if you've missed any of the two previous messages in this series, I would encourage you, go online if you're able. So with that, let's look at the final verses in our text this morning. Mark chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. Mark 10, 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for stewarding us through these passages, Lord, that teaching on such a difficult subject. Lord, we ask as we approach the remainder of this text that you would give us soft hearts to receive it, that you would give us wisdom to apply it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, most will recall that our series began with arguably the most clear statement on divorce given in Scripture. With the Lord speaking in Malachi 2.16, proclaiming, I hate divorce. I hate it. Now, I did a bit of a word study on the, the Hebrew word for hate here to see if I could maybe glean any nuances from it, perhaps more insight. But nope, it just means hate. Now, we don't like to think of God as hating something, we, just like we don't like to think of God as, as angry or, or wrathful, even though Scripture says he is both. And that's mainly because we give God's anger and God's hate human attributes. We think his anger and his hate is like ours. When we think back on a time when we were angry or hating something, chances are better than 50-50 that there was some sin in our hearts when we had those emotions. There is such a thing as righteous anger, yes. But I'll tell you, it's rare. Most anger is sinful anger, though not all. Most hate is murder of the heart, but not all. You can know if your anger is righteous anger if the name of the one being sullied by the action is the Lord's. Righteous anger occurs in response to God's name, God's kingdom, or God's attributes coming under attack. So next time you're angry, there's your Bible focals. If you think your anger is righteous... Is it God who is being defamed by those actions or words that you're angry about? Then it could be. If not, it's likely not a holy anger. (laughs) The same goes for hatred. We are to reserve our hatred for one thing, sin. We hate sin. We hate the effects of sin in people's lives. But that is the only place that our hate cannon may fire. So God hates divorce. No hidden deep meaning there. God hates it with a holy hatred, with a perfect hatred. So that needs to be the disposition that we arrive at this topic ourselves. We should hate it. We should hate the effects of it. If divorce is occurring, we know from our text that sin and a hard heart has entered in somewhere along the way. And the hatred is righteous. Because divorce strikes at the very heart of creation, doesn't it? We've said in both messages that marriage is not a matter of culture. It is a matter of creation. And how do we know this? In Jesus' response to the Pharisees, where does Jesus bring us to demonstrate God's perfect will and design for marriage? He brings us to Genesis 2. He brings us to the creation account. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. And they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Here we have God's design and will, don't we? To leave and cleave. Remember the two paper people glued together? They're not meant to be re-separated. In fact, it can't be done without damaging both of them. That's not God's design. One woman, one man. God did not make a spare Eve or a spare Adam that we don't know about in case either had a midlife crisis. God has joined them together covenantally, sexually. It's an institution that God has formed and fashioned for our good and for His glory even to the point of being a living, breathing representation of Christ to the church, which is a whole other topic of marriage that we'll save for another day. Beloved, divorce literally takes something that God himself has brought together, put together, and says, no, God, I'm going to undo what you have done. And Moses gave this allowance because of our sclerocardia, our sclerosis of the heart, our hardness of the heart, Deuteronomy 24. We get all this from Genesis 2, from the creation account. All was good and perfect in the garden. We see the perfect will of God manifested and demonstrated in Adam and Eve. There would not even been a thought in the mind of Adam and Eve for another. Not a thought. But beloved, there is a problem with Genesis 2. The wonderful, beautiful account of Genesis 2. The problem with Genesis 2 is that Genesis 3 is coming. Yes, we all know that this details the fall of mankind into sin. We know that this is where Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And what happened? They desired something they did not have. They were told there was a secret knowledge to be had. Adam and Eve fell for the two biggest tactics of Satan. The first being to question God. Hath God really said? A lot of that happening in the modern church today. Even though God has spoken clearly on an issue, what is the church saying? Hath God really said? He didn't really mean that. Lots of that going on. No new tactic. So first is to question God, make you doubt what God has said. And second is to tell you that God is holding out on you. He's holding out on you. Those are the two lies of the garden. Hath God really said, and God is holding out on you. There's something better out there than what you presently have. You deserve better. You deserve more. You don't deserve to just sit in this garden all day long, plucking away at fruit trees when there's a world of knowledge to be had. Be dissatisfied. God is holding out on you. I don't need to preach the application there. May the Holy Spirit wield that as needed for your own heart. But what lies buried within Genesis 3 is not just the accounting of the fall and the consequences of the fall. It contains within it the heart and the driver of divorce as well. Genesis 2 gives us marriage. We will see that Genesis 3 gives us divorce. And not just in a general sense of being fallen sinners, but it comes in the specific consequence, the specific judgment and curse of their sin. Ladies, you're not going to like this. And guys, you're not off the hook either. Though it is Father's Day, we'll try and take it a little easy on them. Something happened to the relationships between men and women as a result of the fall. Let's put that up on the screen so we can see it. Genesis 3, 16 and 17. Genesis 3, 16 and 17. And we see in Genesis 3, starting at verse 16, That God pronounces a curse on Eve, doesn't he? Indeed, a curse upon all women. So 16, God curses Eve. 17, God curses Adam. But we see contained in these curses the tragedy that is going to wreck marriages. That is going to upend God's design. So here in verse 16, what do we see? We see pain in childbirth. Pain and bringing forth and and actually included in that is, is the pain of bringing up children as well. It's included in that. I think every mother can testify to that. That's part of the curse. But here's where it gets tragic. Where we see the curse come between the husband and the wife. And it is completely lost in the English. Look closely at verse 16. Our English says that part of the curse is that the desire of the wife will be for the husband. say, well, that sounds great. A wife should desire her husband. No, that's not what that means. This is a curse. It's revealed in the last part. And he will rule over you. The word used here for rule means to be installed in an office, to be placed in an elevated position. Now, that may not make much sense. What does that mean? It means that prior to the fall, you two were susanumi. Remember that word? Susanumi. You were joined together as two oxen, pulling together, co-laboring together as equals. One theologian writes, quote, they were to rule over the creation as co-regents together in perfect complement. But not now. Now he is going to be placed in authority over you. That's the curse. Now, why is that a curse? Maybe you say, great, I want my husband to lead. I want him to be head of the household. Sometimes I wish he would do a little more heading of household. Well, the answer lies in the word desire. Her desire will be for her husband. And what does that mean? Well, lucky for us, this word desire is only used in one other place in Scripture. So it is very easy for us to give direct, clear meaning. Only one other place, and in very close proximity, which is important in reading our Bibles. We use it in, we see it also in Genesis 4, verse 7. Only other place in Scripture. God's speaking to Cain, and he's warning Cain, saying, Sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin is going to want to control you, but you are going to have to master it. That's the same language as the curse in 316. Her desire is for you, meaning she will want to control you and you will have to master her. Boy, this sounds good in 2022, doesn't it? That's not the way it was designed, but that's part of the curse. Hang with me, ladies. Don't get up and leave just yet. Men, you're not off the hook. Part of the curse, God is saying, is that the woman is going to naturally desire to be in control. And she's not going to be. The woman is going to want to assert herself over the husband, and God is not going to allow it. The husband is not going to allow it. Again, that was not the design. The design was co-regents, perfect complements to one another. But now the curse. You will desire to be in control of the home and of your husband. Your natural instinct will be to supplant him, but he will rule over you. Today, if we look to the history of nations, as we grow more secular, as the restraints of scripture are thrown off, as God is thrown off, what happens in general, broad terms to the disposition of the women in that culture? We see explosions of feminism, women desiring to be more masculine, desires that women are shown to be ruling and in control of all aspects of life, CEOs, presidents, you name it. Every sitcom ever made has the dopey husband and the wife who rules the roost, doesn't she? She's the boss. We've all heard the term, we know who wears the pants in that family. Well, God is saying in Genesis 3.16 that the natural fallen heart of the woman is going to want to control. You're going to desire that, but I'm placing the man over you, and that is part of the curse. I didn't write it, I only read it, so see the author with any complaints. But how does this relate to divorce? One well-known pastor who was teaching on this very topic put it so well. I'm going to quote him directly. Quote, there's going to be a battle in the house as a woman seeks to be independent, seeks to be dominant, seeks her will, seeks her way. And as the man tries to control the revolts. But both are fallen men and it gets ugly. It is the collision between women's liberation and male chauvinism. It's conflict in the home because the woman, fallen, is cursed with selfishness and strong will, strong desires, and wants her own way and feels rebellious under this. And she has rebellious attitudes, and the man in turn, who's also fallen, is ungracious, unkind, has a dominating attitude, and this conflict leads to divorce. The man might be put in that position of authority, but he abuses it. He does not treat her and love her as Christ loved the church. He comes home, he slumps on the couch and tells the woman to make him a sandwich. That's awful. That's foul. Male chauvinism is foul. And that's how fallen men will rule. That's the curse. And now fallen man's chauvinism is running headlong into her feminism. Boom. She will desire to control. That's a curse. And he's going to put down that control with a most unloving and ungracious spirit. And the end result, here we are. The husband doesn't want to put up with a controlling and nagging and overbearing wife who wants to run the household, and the wife is tired of being mistreated and lorded over. And divorce knocks at the door. It's the far easier option than the path of sanctification that admonishes us Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the hard path. That's the curse redeemed. Yes, the world is fallen and our marriages reside in that fallen world and the structure of the curse remains until there's a new heaven and a new earth. But we have been redeemed from the curse. Now what used to be a curse? where the woman's desire is to control her husband and run the show, she lovingly submits, and the believing husband takes that submission with the gentlest of hands, and he cherishes it, and he loves it. He would die for her as Christ did for his church. Isn't it amazing how God in Christ takes the curse of Genesis 3 and makes it beautiful? Chauvinism is not beautiful. Feminism is not beautiful. Both are curses of the fall. But now we see the root of it in Genesis, which of course is the lens that Moses would have had as well when he wrote concerning divorce in Deuteronomy 24. But unlike the assertion of the Pharisees, Moses gave no command for divorce. In fact, what the Pharisees cite as a command to divorce actually has nothing to do with divorce at all. And it has to do with the issue of remarriage. And that will become important as we dig deeper here this morning. Moses gave no command to divorce. He did not even give permission for a divorce. Moses was simply saying in Deuteronomy that you are not to remarry an illegitimately divorced woman. Which brings us to the meat of our text today in Mark 10. If we can put those verses back up, please. Mark 10. We see here verse 10 that Jesus and the disciples are back in the house likely where they were staying. And, of course, the disciples have questions. What they are hearing is not what they had been seeing. Not that they had been taught. It's not what they had been taught. It's it's not how they saw life lived out among their Jewish families. They probably had witnessed their own priests and their own rabbis from their own synagogues growing up, throwing away their wife for any reason they wanted to. So they want some clarification. And I think we all appreciate this clarity because this issue has a tendency to get very messy and very convoluted very quickly. And it needn't be. The perspicuity of Scripture, right? The clarity of Scripture. It's pretty clear. So Jesus breaks it down. Easy for them. Great. Tell me like I'm a fifth grader so I get this. Good. That's what I need. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, verse 11, please, and commits adultery against her. And verse 12, and if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. All right, well, let's not complicate things. First things first. If you get divorced, man or woman, and you marry another, you're committing adultery. All right, pretty simple. Why? Because you're still married to the other person. Remarriage after divorce is adultery. Well, thankfully, we're not left there. If we were, we would have men and women who were sinning against their spouses in adultery all over the place. But thankfully, God offers mercy for the hurt party. He offers mercy for the hurt party. In Matthew 19 and in Matthew 5, we have what is known as the exception clause. Now, truly, this is a it's a full message unto itself But before we look at it, it should be said that a message on divorce is not the correct venue to to litigate and to examine or to render counsel on on every possible scenario. That is not our mission because that is not what Jesus does in our text. And we are chained to the text. So we're going to look at broad definitions, broad strokes that are clear with the understanding that each situation requires thoughtful. Prayerful, slow processes of working with your pastor, working with your elder to examine the situation in light of the totality of Scripture. So you may not hear your specific situation addressed. There are far too many variables to pigeonhole everyone. Anyone who has experienced a divorce knows that things are not always as simple and as cut and dry Categorize. We must take the time to process through an event like that biblically. So let's look to Matthew then, chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, for some context. We'll put it up on the screen here. We've got it. This is our parallel account of our text in Mark 10, and thankfully it gives us more detail, a vital detail that Mark omits. Here we will see the exception clause given to us in both Matthew 19 and Matthew 5. Now, just to answer the obvious question, why doesn't Mark have the exception clause? As we know by this point in Mark's gospel, Mark is an abbreviated writer. If something is a given or an assumed to be understood, Mark doesn't write it. It's his style, to the point. So they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Matthew 19. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, here comes the exception clause, except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Well, that adds some color, some additional color to the picture, doesn't it? And this was not the first time Jesus spoke this. It was spoken of in Matthew 5 as well. In the greatest sermon ever delivered, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Notice he doesn't say that's a, a, that that's what he's telling them to do. He's saying, it was said, let him. Remember those. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, here it comes again, except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorce divorced woman commits adultery. Well, our word here for marital unfaithfulness is pornea now that 's a term not necessarily restricted to adultery but really any sexual uncleanness. Now you would be shocked if you went to study this word that you will find. Five different definitions and theological strains of thought on what porneia means. I will spare you those. But, any sexual uncleanness. Any sexual uncleanness, because the two have become one flesh. Adultery, sexual infidelity breaks that bond. It rips the paper people apart, leaving both parties tattered. And we see the exception clause exercised in Scripture, don't we? It flows quite logically out of the law, first of all. What was the penalty supposed to be for adultery under the Mosaic law? Death. That's how high a standard God places on the marriage covenant. So we see the exception clause first flow naturally from the law. If someone committed adultery, what would happen to them? They would be killed. That now leaves a wounded spouse behind. She's wounded, but she's free. She's free. Are they commanded to remain alone for the rest of their life because of the sin of their spouse? No. Now what if death is not exacted upon the adulterer? What if they live, which we see? Mercy has been given to them. Mercy has been extended to the adulterer. If not for the exception clause, the innocent party would be forever punished, unable to remarry because God was merciful in not killing the adulterer. God is not unfair. God is not unfair. Just as an aside, beloved, you'll often hear those who are hostile to Christianity use these Old Testament laws as reasons to reject Christ. Of course, they'll ask you, did you you put your child to death for their disobedience? Will I be stoned for eating shellfish? You'll hear those things. Don't shy away from those remarks. They're actually great inroads to the gospel, to the holiness of God. That God had a people set apart for himself. That they were not to be as the world. Thus God made the consequences so severe that no one would ever break them. And indeed there's no record in the Old Testament of a child ever being stoned for being disobedient. Turns out that law made for awfully obedient children. The same goes for adultery. Death was commanded and was even sometimes acted upon in politically expedient circumstances. Remember the woman caught in adultery in the Gospel of John. They wanted to stone her. Now, they didn't care as much about her as, her adultery as they did to trap Jesus. They could have just sent her away. And ironically, probably most of the men holding the stones that day actually were in adultery as well because they had all divorced their wives for illegitimate reasons and taken new ones. One has to wonder what did Jesus write in the sand that made them all drop their stones and walk away. And we see it walked out as well with Mary and Joseph. Joseph assumed Mary had been unfaithful. She was pregnant, pretty convincing evidence. Joseph could have publicly exposed her. She could have been stoned. Instead, he was going to divorce her quietly. And Joseph was a righteous man. Divorce was allowed. Now this is what's known as the betrothal view. Again, five different theological strains of thought that I will spare you from in that. But study that later if you're more interested to know more. So we see allowance given. Allowance is given clearly. Jesus says there is allowance given we also see something of an exception clause is given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.11. For what would seem to be an abandonment of the believer by their spouse. Now here God would seem to possibly allow for remarriage as well. Now there are a whole host of intricacies to that which we don't have time to cover. It's a much more nuanced topic than it appears. But to state it simply, beloved, in any case where divorce is allowed being marital unfaithfulness, or abandonment by the spouse, possibly, where divorce is allowed, remarriage of the innocent party is allowed and would not be considered adultery. That's grace. That's mercy that's given to the innocent party. Now, what about a person who gets a divorce for a reason other than the two reasons we see in Scripture, and then gets remarried? Well, Scripture says that is adultery. So now we must ask the question: is this adultery now an act or a state? Is this remarriage an act of adultery or a state of adultery? Well, most of the time our Greek is a clear help to us here, help to us here, not as much uh, without some digging, but it does come to. The word for adultery here is given in the present tense. Now, unfortunately, present tense, as many of you know, means a continual state. Now, that would be bad if that carries over to this situation, because that would mean that adultery was not an act, but a continual state. However, the present tense does not always mean a continual state. We have what's known as the aorist, or the punctiliar sense. Oh, that's a fun word to say. Which simply means that an action took place, an act something happened. In fact, if we look at Jesus' use in Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, when speaking of, divorce, he u- speaking of divorce, he uses this present tense. Well, we know that divorce is a one-time act. You're not continually being divorced. You are divorced once, and we see the use of this present tense. And that is good news. That is good news, because that means that the adultery spoken of for those who may have divorced for illegitimate reasons is an act of adultery, not a continual state of adultery. It was only the single act of remarriage itself that was adulterous. Now, I know that may sound heady or or like we're in the weeds, but it's incredibly important. Imagine being a remarried couple who thinks that every time they're intimate, they're committing adultery afresh. You think that might have an impact on a marriage? It matters. It matters. Thus, if that is your case, even if you remarried in this state, you have come to Christ. He has forgiven every sin. He has washed that clean. You are to live your marriage out now to the glory of God. He will redeem and restore. That's his specialty, even in an act of adultery. But that's the law, beloved. That's the law. What you can do. Now the question becomes, what should one do? As always, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. God hates divorce. As believers, we should hate it as well. Back in seminary, I had to do some extensive writing on the the topics of divorce and remarriage because it's something that pastors encounter all the time. It's one of our most common questions and issues in counseling. There are more intricacies in this topic than you could possibly imagine, more than we could cover in this series without giving you a Ph.D. in theology. But one of the blessings of that study and writing was seeing the pictures God gives us in the the Scripture concerning His heart toward covenant marriage and concerning the stain of divorce. More John to Jeremiah 3, verse 1. The Lord speaks to His beloved Israel. They say, if a man put away his wife, and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. I want to bring attention to that last sentence here. What do we see? Israel has committed spiritual adultery against their first love. And we see a picture of one party being wronged and hurt, yet being long-suffering and reconciliation being the finishing goal. And in fact, if we move down a few verses later to Jeremiah 3, verse 8, watch what happens. Quote, she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. What do we see now? We see God issuing a decree of divorce to Israel, but the context here tells the story. God had toiled with Israel for seven hundred years at this point, through adulteries, idol worship, stubbornness, bitterness, complaining, unrepentant living. One need only read the history of the Israelites to know the wicked and continually adult, continual adulteries that were perpetrated upon their first love, the Lord. Was this divorce decree something God did lightly? <laughs> Heaven forbid. In fact, even after all this, after the harlotry and adultery of Israel, just five verses earlier in Jeremiah, we see God crying out once again to return to Him. Another beautiful picture into the heart of God towards marriage and divorce is the story of Hosea and Gomer. Gomer. The synopsis of this story is that God tells Hosea to marry Gomer. Gomer was a known prostitute. To demonstrate a picture to Israel of his relationship with them. And in time, Gomer gives birth to two illegitimate children from her prostitution. And she continues on in her prostitution. And Hosea does everything he can to stop this. And all the while, he cares for her and pursues her. And finally, Gomer has hit rock bottom. And Hosea goes to find her. And he finds her naked, being sold at auction to the highest bidder. Now, does Hosea trot out the exception clause? That's it. I've had enough. No. Hosea buys her, rescues her. And takes her away. Tell me should Hosea have divorced her. Well would he have been legally justified in doing so. Legally perhaps. But that isn't the point. God is demonstrating the heart of the matter. Hosea had every right to divorce Gomer. The Lord had every right to issue a decree of divorce. To an adulterous Israel that he did. That he did. 700 years of patience however destructive sexual immorality is to a marriage, it does not mandate divorce. Yes, it's allowed at the end of a very long and pleading road. Restoration, forgiveness, long-suffering is the disposition of the heart. The blood of Christ can wash us white as snow. If any of these circumstances, beloved, have touched your life in the past, Coming to Christ makes all things new. But we go and we sin no more. For all of our married couples, we need never darken the treacherous door of this topic. Two people joined together. Susunumi pulling together. Covenant partners racing each other daily to the foot of the cross. You will know the peace of Christ in your marriage. Love each other dearly. Love each other sincerely. Be kind to one another. Compassionate to one another. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Where we suffer from sclerocardia, sclerosis of the heart. Let this message bring life and water back in. Soft and tender hearted. Love as you have been loved. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Restore as you have been restored. And Christ will dwell richly in your homes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage. The unbelievable institution. From the very foundation of the world, from the very creation of the world. Lord, you saw that it was not good that we should be alone, but that we should have a mate. And Lord, we know that through our hardness of heart, through our sclerocardia, that we have made a hash of it. Heavenly Father, we ask and we pray for the marriages in our congregation and for all those listening. Lord, where there be conflict, Lord, where we look to Genesis 3 and we identify with it and we see where Genesis has our number. We ask, Lord, that we would come in repentance and faith. We ask that the heart of stone would be made flesh. We ask, Lord, that the love, the fellowship, the person of Christ would dwell richly in our lives, in our homes, and in our marriages. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.